Welcome to the F5 Technology Podcast, What Lies Beneath, a deep dive into the underpinnings of our digital lives. I'm Terry Patrick with F5 Networks. Today's our inaugural podcast, and I'm very pleased to be able to kick things off with Joel Moses from F5's Office of the CTO with a conversation about the monsters we make navigating our new model applications. So, Joel, I'll let you introduce yourself and give listeners a bit of insight into your background. Absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here, Terry. My, my background is, uh, is mainly in security. I've been a, a, in information security in various capacities for well over 20 years now. I've been working for F5 for just about eight years. Uh, prior to that, I ran security operations teams uh, for, for a, large, uh, a large accounting and consulting firm. Uh, so I, I tend to look at applications with a critical eye. All right. Well, let's let's start off then by defining some terms. What, sure. What is a new model application? Well, it's it's a recognition that an application is a much different beast than it used to be. Uh, newer applications are built less like monoliths and and more like a a function of their parts. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Often an application today will be built from uh, what I call unknown state or partially known state monolithic components, meaning there are small components and you either know what they are, you've developed them yourself, or you've sourced them from an external party. So you, you know what state they exist in, but there, it may be combined with things that you don't know. Uh, they also contain loosely, loosely intermeshing assemblies of ever smaller parts. Uh, as we begin to create applications that are more API-driven, we divide the application apart into very small functional components, and we distribute those widely. Uh, and then we try to intermesh them together back on the client side. They're also sometimes implemented in ways that produce something that looks correct, but sometimes don't act correctly when they're placed under stress, uh, or when you attempt to use the assembly in a way that it wasn't designed for. Uh, to me, that kind of leads me to a metaphor that I like to talk about. And of course, I draw a lot of my metaphors because I'm an engineer out of the world of science fiction. Uh, so to me, uh, the new model application looks an awful lot like a guy we all know, Frankenstein. So would that be Frankenstein or would that be Frankenstein's monster? That's, a, that's an excellent point. <laughs> That isn't Frankenstein. It is Frankenstein's monster, although I think it's an object lesson. In Mary Shelley's original text, the creature isn't actually named. He's just referred to as Frankenstein's monster. You have to consider that kind of as a warning to the application developer. It's entirely possible the creation of a hated thing is going to be most closely identified with the person who created it, right? (laughs) So your name can be associated with the monster that you create. Failure lasts a really long time, and it can be irretrievably and irrevocably associated with everybody who's involved with it. So you should take that as an, an object lesson as a developer. Well, how did we get here? How, how did, um, how did uh, what I'm assuming were very rational reasons for adopting? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the modern application is built from parts both big and small, good and bad, local, remote, monolith, microservice, legacy and new. It requires a whole lot of energy to initiate and even more to keep running. It's often misunderstood by the people who develop it, and it can be uh, quite effective, though, as it is as long as you can keep it away from things like pitchforks and fire and failure conditions (laughs) and scaling problems. In short, an application is an amalgam of things that are big and powerful and can be trustworthy and can be valuable, 
provided you understand what it's made of and what drives it. Otherwise, it becomes a monster. Well, okay. Then the obvious question there then is, in your experience, because I know you go and you examine a lot of applications at a lot of a lot of organizations sites. So based on that experience, how well do you see developers and operators understanding the boundaries of those applications they're creating and assembling? Well, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll understand the boundaries of things that they code. The great thing about DevOps is that DevOps has, has put a tremendous amount of rigor behind the code that you develop. The difficulty is it's often not just the code that you develop that becomes a functional part of your pipeline. I'll give you an example of this. Whenever I'm asked to assess the risks to a particular application, I begin by mapping the application. And not just mapping the pieces that I can see and grab a hold of within the data center, uh, I also look at the, um, the way that a modern application is built because it often hides interrelationships between the parts uh, that aren't visible from the outside. The first thing that, that I always notice is that, that uh, there's usually a stage of an application where the, a, a good portion of the application is actually executing on the client side. You know, it used to be that we would develop a web application and the web browser was just our display client. Nowadays, uh, you're developing APIs and then you're tying APIs together into an execution stage that exists away from your, your servers. You have to take that into account because what happens is uh, pieces will be embedded into the application that call in external components. And you have to know where those external components are. You have to know how they interoperate, not just from a, not just from a, a physical perspective, but also from an execution perspective. And you have to understand the layout of the application. Uh, one of the things that I, I find at a lot of customer sites uh, is, is a heavy reliance on externalized analytics. This is very common. If you look at the Alexa top 1 million and you take the top 1,000 sites out of that, 87% of the Alexa top 1,000 sites leverage Google Analytics. Okay? Nobody deploys web trends for web analytics anymore. Instead, they look for an externalized service that's much easier to deploy and configure. Google Analytics sits on top of an infrastructure called Google Tag Manager, which is essentially an eventing structure that you embed into your application's code that exists only on the client side. That eventing structure takes all the transactions of your application, creates elements from them that can be analyzed and attributed to, to a web transaction. Uh, you get wonderful dashboarding with Google Analytics, but one thing that I find that customers don't necessarily understand is that it rides the same infrastructure as things like Google Ad Brokering, Google AdWords, and a third-party marketplace for Google Tag Manager. Most organizations that I talk to, I, when they are in fact aware that they're using Google Analytics, but half of the organizations I talk to aren't even aware that mm. the developers or someone, say, in the marketing team has chosen that as an analytics product. When they are aware, most organizations aren't aware of who configures and manages this external component. Now that's critical because this has the capability of, of viewing on the client side transactions that take place within the browser. Uh, it also has the, the side effect of potentially being a performance problem. Uh, if, if the tag is put in in the wrong place, 
that tag could, could have a negative performance impact on the application. So again, if you look at it from the, the server-side perspective, your application is performing fine. But if you've mispositioned a JavaScript tag within a page, you, you could actually incur significant delay and, uh, and outages in your application that you'll never see unless you've mapped out and understand that in a relationship. So of the customers that you work with, how well equipped are they to, to deal with this? I mean, how, how well do they understand this problem and how easily do they get their hands around it and address it? For the most part, I would say that the code that our, our customers develop for their applications directly, they understand that code very well. There may be some interdependencies in the code that they don't necessarily understand well, and I'll get to that in a minute. But when it, uh, when it actually composites on the client side of the transaction, I find that a lot of customers are, are not very aware uh, of the importance of how an application executes on the client side. Uh, it's important to understand that because it, it represents a new place for risks to, to crop up. A lot of customers don't understand the risks, for example, of inline JavaScript in their application. An attacker uh, that wants to insert malware in a page often looks for inline JavaScript sequences to modify so that the, those modifications can carry additional malware payload. Uh, and it executes in the security domain of that browser client. So it's important to recognize that uh, developing an application, you also have to think about how the execution occurs, uh, not just within external components like Google Tag Manager, but also within your own components that you've coded. So within an organization, where does the responsibility lie? Is it with the security team? Is it with training the developers? How, on an organizational level, how do you go about getting your hands around this and addressing this effectively? Well, that's an excellent question. I, I think that the first thing to do is to understand the application by mapping the application uh, as it sits from two perspectives. First, mapping dependencies within the application that, that you control. Uh, second, mapping dependencies in the application that may be out of your control or externalized. Uh, so I like to divide it into two parts. I look at the dependencies within the application uh, within the open source that's imported into the application from a code perspective. Then I take a look at exactly how the, the uh, application is compositing within the client side, uh, and I produce a, a map of, of how the interrelationships are, are done. It's important to do that because it, you, you begin to recognize that the modern application has a, has a really interesting characteristic. Because we're drawing from lots of different sources, Sometimes those sources must include other things, and those other things include other things. When you begin charting things out, you recognize that it's not just first and second party code. Oftentimes it's third and fourth and fifth party code. Once you understand that, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to run in that particular mechanism, but, but you really need to understand that, that, uh, the, the pattern of interrelationships that you're creating. So let's go back then and uh, talk a bit more about the Frankenstein's monster metaphor. Sure. Let, let's talk about the monster's brain. What, what's the application equivalent of the monster's brain? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So uh, in, the, in the story, of course, uh, it's Igor that goes out and um, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't really check the brain that he gets from the, uh, from the laboratory. And so, so he... Um, he, he comes up with an unknown brain, and the brain actually happens to be defective. And that, that's, that's actually something that occurs in, in real time in some of our application development. 
So I, I like to divide things apart into two things, the known brain and the unknown brain. Um, there are things that we build into our applications to help support business logic, and these are usually well understood, things like service definitions, API endpoints, libraries and imports, and core business logic. But like Dr. Frankenstein did, we often embed things without necessarily realizing that they're defective. In 2017, an open source developer got tired of supporting their project. The project was called LeftPad, and it was a Node.js component that uh, all it really did was provide an easy method to take a string and simply add padding to its left side uh, with spaces. It, it's a very tiny piece of code. It does an incredibly simple thing, but it was referenced in over 20,000 other open source projects, and so uh, some of which, um, uh, some of the open source projects actually link to it directly in what's called npm.js.org. So it was pulling this, this script directly from that repository. Instantly, some of the applications that depended directly on the project broke, but more importantly, some of the applications that depended on things that had embedded it mm. also broke. They just instantly broke. Uh, that's not the only example. Uh, there, there's, there's been uh, critical flaws in prominent web applications. Uh, there have been critical vulnerabilities in OpenSSL. These things are, are components that you have to think about, right? But you not only have to think about them, you have to think about what they depend on as well. That's why things like code inspection and deprecation checking within your pipeline are so important. Interesting. How about how about the legs? How does how does it how does the application move around? Okay, well, by legs, um, I, I th what, what, what you can probably uh, relate that to is is the packaging and mobility of an application, right? That's really important. Uh, the legs are what take you places, and packaging for modern applications take you in lots of different directions. There are good legs and there are bad legs, you know, in the, to continue this metaphor judicious use of API management, choosing proper packaging that fits the environment that you deploy into, choosing the right density for your environment, positioning things close to the users of the application, uh, those are things that, that you really want to find good legs for. But there are bad legs, there are bad things that you can do for packaging and for deployment. A certain provider in 2018 of large-scale backup services for a very specific ecosystem's mobile devices. I won't mention any names, but you probably, uh, if you're 50% of the world, you probably carry one of their phones. They erroneously move storage to the wrong location for only about a 1% of the devices in a specific region. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was just a normal rebalancing in an automated way of storage uh, with an incorrect query that selected a, a just too many devices. It doesn't sound like a big deal until we realize that 1% of the backup data equated to 350 million devices affected, right? This is a, an example of automation that can that can go awry, right? So, so if you, when, you're, uh, when you're designing automation in a system, you have to realize that, that um, you need to you need to test it. Uh, you need to define the proper bounds for it, uh, and you need to uh, have have uh, failure conditions that are comfortable for you, uh, rather than risky. Now, I would think for the devices though that are using for for devices that are depending on that, there's not a whole lot that they can do about that. I mean, there are certain things that you can't control for. Correct. Right. That's correct. Right. 
Um, so yeah, and in that particular case, what you really need to do is look for look for ways to to quickly detect that a failure has, has occurred in your automation mm. infrastructure. One of the most important things is to make sure that your test regimen is actually testing something. I examine a lot of code, um, and and in examining a lot of code, I examine a lot of pipelines. And one thing that I have found um, that's sort of disturbing about about the way that we instrument our pipeline from a test perspective uh, is that I often see tests that that produce that produce a result simply by looking to see that the value is true and what I mean by that is looking to see whether one equals one literally mm-hmm. it's 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 easy to design a test that simply looks for a pre-existing condition it's tougher to design a test that uses a real-world system or real-world data to simulate what would occur towards an API call. The difficulty with the one equals one test is that when you finally do encounter zero, you may not actually recognize it as a failure. Um, so spending a lot of time making sure that your unit tests are accurate uh, is, is something that you really should do. And from the, from the administration of a pipeline, uh, you should probably spend a little time looking at uh, test hygiene. Uh, and test validity. That'll save you down the road. In your experience, do you see that uh, chaos engineering practices are actually encompassing of these external resources? Well, you know, or it's appropriately in- encompassing. Sure. You know, it's interesting. A lot of chaos occurs kind of by an organic mechanism uh, within DevOps because DevOps pushes. Uh, you to release as quickly as, as possible. Uh, it, it wants you to shorten the release pipeline as much as you can. There are two things at play here that, that, that really keep you from doing that. The first is that a system that is well-tuned moves at the speed of its slowest part. Um, otherwise, things begin to pile up in the pipeline. Uh, so it's not necessarily good practice to go as fast as possible. Mm. It's good practice to go as fast as everyone can. And that's that's a that's a substantial difference in in how people sometimes think about uh, engineering their pipeline. The other piece is that a lot of times, I, I would say that uh, in in pursuit of speed, we often choose the easiest or the the frictionless way of doing things. That encourages us to take and, and embed externalized things into our applications because if we don't have to code it and we can just draw it from somewhere else, that's something that we can cut out of our pipeline. You have to realize, though, that, that uh, you're embedding a little bit of, of eccentricity into your pipeline. You're embedding uh, a little chaos, right? It's not just your pipeline anymore. If you embed Google Tag Manager, for example, you're embedding the, ta- the, the pipeline that, that iterates code and injects things into the client-side execution stage of your application. And you don't control when those releases are done. You don't even know when those releases are done. And yet you have to set up an operational model to help you navigate uh, failures in it or, or help you understand when, when code changes occur. So there, there are some serious trade-offs that you need to be consciously considering. Because Abs- you're, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Well, so, okay, so coming back to the, the monster metaphor, how about, how about arms? What are the arms of the monster? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, I would say that that's the breadth uh, of the application. And, and the, 
the choices that we make to bring things or group things into our application. Um, there are external data and services. We've talked about Google Tag Manager. It is by far not the only one. Uh, there's lots of different ones. Uh, uh, in the marketing world, there are often tag-based infrastructures that you can embed into an application to give you uh, how many navigations or page views you've got mm -hmm. for a particular topic area. Uh, you've got CDN resources that you can deploy to, to, to move content out closer to user populations. You can also, and I see an increasing reliance on things like social network helpers. There's nothing inherently bad about, about making sure that your application is interconnected with social networks. It helps drive customers to your application. Uh, it, helps, it helps them stay longer and be happier when they're in your application. Uh, but you also have to be aware of exactly what you're doing when you do that. There are privacy concerns, for example, uh, because you're embedding a component that has access to a large number of transactions that your application may do. Um, and you have to understand what data that it may be receiving. You have to understand what, uh, what, who manages that, that interrelationship with the social network. You have to understand the pipeline that comes in from that. You also have to understand how they integrate, how they operate when they're embedded into your application. Uh, keep in mind that services that work by code insertion and that are unbounded by policy can easily insert any other code that they want. Uh, anyone who uses Google Analytics is, is usually unaware that it's shared with a subsystem that allows you to inject over 250 marketplace applications. If you're going to use tools like that, and there is no reason that you shouldn't, don't get me wrong, you should come up with a mm -hmm. governance plan mm -hmm. to help you manage that. That sounds like great advice. <laughs> so so what about what about the spark of life? Ah, what about give my creation life. life. Yes. That's right, the animation of the corpse. You know, in software operations parlance, um, automation and orchestration and operations, that's what gives you the spark uh, to, to, your, to, your, uh, to your new model application. It, it helps you put life into your, into your corpse. They're positive things, right? There are CI/CD pipelines. There are task automation infrastructures like Ansible. There's test automation within the development pipeline. There are tools that make operating environments easier to visualize, but you also have to understand exactly what automation and orchestration can do from a negative perspective. The more agile your pipeline, the faster it goes. And just like Igor, it's tempting to save a little time by selecting the, the wrong brain, by not testing properly. Uh, it's, you have to spend a little time to ensure that tests have significant quality and that they can prevent security and performance issues down the line. I've also seen a lot of application rollouts fail because, uh, because of a poor handoff from one team to another. There's still handoffs, even within DevOps, and sometimes DevOps methodologies can help with the problem, but because of the amalgamated nature, the assembly of this monster, not everything that comprises an application is in developed code. One place I usually see this interaction is, is when applications are developed on top of something like Office 365. I have never, ever seen an enterprise where the DevOps team is provisioning, running, and supported Office, supporting Office 365 directly. But I have seen lots of instances where the applications the DevOps teams are working on require resources from Office mm -hmm. 365. 
If your application is about to make an oversized demand on SharePoint, for example, then providing a proper operational handoff is, is going to be preventing a bad week from occurring. And then there's uh, what I would call uninstrumented automation. This is an automation, automated task that may not have a fully expressed failure condition, meaning I don't fully understand how my automation might fail. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to skip out of the Frankenstein metaphor for just a second here, and I'm going to ask you to think about a Roomba. A Roomba is a wonderful example of a fully automated system. But that fully automated system, don't think that automation stands for intelligent. All it takes for the automation of a Roomba to fail is to have one dog with <laughs> poor hygiene control in the room with the Roomba. The Roomba will then do exactly what it does. It'll clean the room fine, but if you add the one additional va variable of a, of a dog poo on the carpet, it's going to spread things around. You have to think about your automation systems in much the same way. They can produce good output. They can produce repeatable good output. But it's gated by the quality of the input. As in much of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, so for, for somebody listening, thinking, okay, um, I can relate to this absolutely our applications are not entirely encoded in how coded in-house right I I understand that, that we have these issues mm -hmm. where do I start so you know you'd mentioned you want to map the application out right? absolutely understand yeah. understand those dependencies well what then what after I have it mapped out now what do I do well so if you if you think about Frankenstein and you think about the parts of Frankenstein uh, Try this next. Uh, after you've mapped the application and you understand exactly what it looks like, look for things like attempts to add extraneous or unneeded arms. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. There might be JavaScript methods in the application that have external linkages uh, to external sites. Literally, the server is referencing something outside of itself. Look for things like that. You know, is it necessary? is it possible that I can take that external component and make it an internal component? Mm. That's, that's, a good, that's a good starting point. Look for things uh, like attempts in code to patch HTML that are delivered directly. Sometimes patching is done to embed content or scripts. And, you know, this is reasonably safe unless it's inline or unless it's downloaded or uns over unsafe methods. Uh, but it could be referencing something dangerous, and it's, and it's very difficult to see, and it sometimes bypasses code quality checks. It's always good from a security perspective to know why those things are being done. Sometimes developers will do things out of convenience without considering the impact that it might have from a security perspective. If an application is already hosted on a web server, uh, and you notice that the application is setting up yet another listening port, you should probably ask why that's the case. Why do you need to set up another port on the same server? It's, it's one of those times where your map may point out things that you should pay closer attention to. You know, be skeptical of, of an application that insists on setting its own error conditions in code. Normally that's something that should be set by the server itself. You, you should ask why. You should, you should, um, you should ask why people uh, are asking for an exception to an established policy on the server. Okay. What, are, are there third-party tools that can help? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's continue the metaphor. Uh, so if you're going to continue, um, if you're going to continue drawing your brains from the graveyard, uh, you should probably try to quit using garbage for brains. I'm not being critical of open source here. I want to be very clear on that. I absolutely adore open source. I adore the fact that I can inspect it myself for security problems, and I want the whole world to adore it as much as I do. But you have to use common sense. If you use open source as part of your business logic, you should probably be able to understand it yourself. Okay? We're not all designing black box monoliths anymore, but if you're using open source from public repositories, never pipeline code in directly from those public repositories, mm. okay? So in terms of tools that you can use to help you govern this, don't pull in from public GitHub, use your own private repository, use only vetted versions of the components you build with, or failing that, make sure that you're using like a central cache repository for your code. That way you have some distance between your development process and unvetted or untested or untried code. Make sense? Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Well, so then what happens next? Well, I mean, you, you know, one thing that you can do, once you've mapped an application, there are, there are steps that you can take. First of all, your application map should be instructive as to how you need to structure uh, your pipeline around it. Uh, it'll, it should point towards what you should be testing more of. It should, be, it should point to where you may need to create a private repository or where you may need to vet the code better. Okay, so that's from the development perspective. Um, from the operations perspective, it will point out where you have internal components and where you have externalized components. It'll point out where you may need to create a governance process around those external components. But mo most importantly, when you map out your application fully, the world opens to you. The world of uh, things like using content security policies to help govern the application when it does actually reach the client side and is executing on the client side. Content security policies, if you don't know about them, are a W3C standard. Uh, they're embedded in every single major web browser on the market, including the mobile browsers. And only 1% of the Alexa top 1 million actually use content security policies. Hmm. And the reason for that is what I mentioned at the very start of this, most people build an application that is an amalgam of things and they don't understand the, what they've built well enough to, to provide the browser a map of the monster that it should be enforcing for. When you build this map, you can actually build a content security policy that won't break things. Most customers that I talk to that try content security policy creation uh, usually end up failing, and they end up failing because there's so many interrelationships they don't know about that every time they try to deploy one, it breaks the application in unusual ways. But if you are methodical and you study the interrelationships of the application, it looks basically like a tree, uh, and, and you can map that tree and you can encode that tree into a content security policy. Um, I'd highly recommend that, that customers look at doing that. Uh, there are going to be more protections activated within browsers coming up, uh, privacy protections, for example, that will be uh, gated by the use of content security policy. So if you want to adhere to uh, the latest standards and you also want to make sure that you uh, pay attention to and satisfy the various regional and, and national laws related to privacy, like GDPR, uh, you're going to want to know how these controls work. And the first step to that is to make sure you map your monster. 
Okay. Clearly, clearly the number one recommenda- recommendation is map it out appropriately. Well, how challenging is that? You know, it's, it's, um, it's reasonably challenging. Uh, and the reason for that is that, that a component that is embedded externally may embed other components, which may embed other components. And those will iterate, those will change faster than your pipeline will. And so you, it's something that you have to do continuously. Um, and there, there, are some, there are some tools that you can use to help you do that. Um, and uh, we, we will, of course, be, be investing in making those tools available as well. So I'm, I'm sure there are people listening uh, that are thinking, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, it's, a lot, it's a lot to take in. That, that, that's a lot. So where do they start? So Well, so, and, and I, I want to be very clear on this. Uh, there is absolutely no need to fear the monster that you've built. He was built with good intentions. We are all people with good intentions. You just have to take a few steps to understand the monster that you built. Uh, you can understand the parts that comprise him because you already understand the motivations with which he was built. Okay, there's no need to fear your monster. He's a pretty good chap. Uh, he'll he'll help you out. Uh, you just have to make sure that that you you know him from the sum of his parts. All right. Well, thank you, Joel. Absolutely, it's great to be here. So this was the F5 Technology Podcast, What Lies Beneath a Deep Dive into the Underpinnings of Our Digital Lives with Joel Moses.